Welcome to the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast, where we dive into the climate change crisis and discuss how technology and innovations can help save our planet. I'm your host, Cody Sims. Join us as we talk with sustainability experts, investors, and founders about the issues we're collectively facing today due to climate change and how entrepreneurship can help. Stacy. Thank you so much for joining us today. The work you all are doing at Shopify to support climate tech founders building carbon removal technology, it's truly wonderful. It's an honor to help you share more about your efforts here. But before we dive into your efforts with Shopify, let's learn more about you. Can you introduce yourself and tell us how you arrived on this focus personally? Where did your own journey start? Thanks so much for having me, Cody. It's great to be on the podcast. My name's Stacy, and I'm the director of Shopify's Sustainability Fund. But as you've requested, how did I get here and what was the, the journey that drew me to this role? So I'm a Canadian. I love the outdoors and nature, and I grew up with a great affinity for it. And I also loved mathematics. I felt like it was such a, a cool way to describe nature. And so uh, the logical progression for me was to get into engineering. So that's my background. And I started my career as a practicing consulting engineer, working with a variety of industry clients in different sectors, helping them to you know reduce emissions and put pollution prevention and protection measures in place. And it became quite clear to me in the project economics that the environment's always on the cost side of a project. And I felt that there was a need to make the environment more of a benefit of a project and not just seen as a, as a one-sided transaction. And that led me to move from applied engineering into public policy and the regulatory landscape here in Canada. So I joined the federal government and spent almost 10 years at environment and climate change on the other side of the coin, working on policies and regulations to limit those emissions from those same industry actors that I used to work for. And that gave me a really interesting perspective because I have a good understanding of the constraints of industry and projects and how fast those things can move. But then I also have an understanding of government and public policy and the important role that that plays with industry. And so those two components actually, when put together, are almost the perfect tools to go and build something like Shopify's sustainability fund. And so when I came across that opportunity and saw Shopify's announcement, it just compelled me to get involved and to see what I could do in that space. That's so cool. And I think with climate, there's so much overlap between obviously technology and business as well as policy. And I think it's such a policy rich environment for any entrepreneur coming in. The fact that you've been to school in both of those areas surely is, is helpful for you as you're trying to figure out which technologies you, you may want to back. From that, let's maybe talk through the Shopify Sustainability Fund. What is it? How and why did it get started? How does it relate to Shopify's core business? I mean, I guess, why is Shopify doing this? And how should startups engage or learn more about it? What ultimately does success look like for you and for the startups that you're working with? That's about five questions, but uh, hopefully you can pick out the ones you want to answer. For sure. And it's actually kind of nice to start it off with a bit of a story. So Shopify Sustainability Fund 
is a $5 million annual commitment that Shopify invests in entrepreneurial breakthrough technologies and companies with the objective of advancing these sustainability practices for everyone to be able to access down the road because we really want to be able to reverse climate change. So Shopify launched its sustainability fund in September 2019 and it really came out of a process that the company was going through at the time where we were calculating our carbon footprint and wanting to go back and address all of our historical emissions and make a really meaningful climate commitment for the company. During that process, you know, we, we did all the data gathering, we crunched the numbers and great, we've got our big footprint. And it was like, okay, now we need to go out and make sure that we're buying carbon credits or carbon offsets that we know and trust. So we went out and we started doing research and what we were looking for wasn't really available. And what I'm talking about when I say what we were looking for is that we didn't want to just buy an avoided emissions offset that paid somebody else not to pollute as much as we already had through our operations. What we wanted to do was feel good about what we were supporting in the project and make sure that it was having the impact that would go out and actually capture the carbon dioxide that we emitted from the atmosphere, take it and lock it away for a very, very long time. And that's what we wanted to buy to address our historical emissions. And back in 2019, what was available was extremely expensive and the quantities just aren't there. And so that kind of led to this idea and thesis that there's a market that's very immature, if it even exists at all, in terms of high quality carbon removal. And so that led to the thesis of, well, let's spend money every year on high quality carbon removal. And would that be enough to kickstart that market? And we thought that by spending the money on an annual basis, we would be generating a consistent demand where there previously was none. And then that demand would allow companies to prove their impact and scale. And then with the longer term objective of driving down prices for future buyers to be able to buy similar high quality carbon credits. That's a long story about how we established our fund but it's really important to understand where it came from because it's not about not reducing our emissions. We did a lot of that work, but it's really about making sure that one plus zero still equals one. We want to make sure one minus one equals zero from the atmosphere's perspective. And that was a, a very important realization for the company. And, you know, Cody, you touched on how does this relate to Shopify's core business? Shopify is on a mission of becoming a company that's around 100 years from now. We're not making short-term decisions just for immediate gain. We're playing the long game here. And Shopify is a business that champions entrepreneurs. And we really are the entrepreneurship company. So if we're the entrepreneurship company, we want to make sure that anyone anywhere around the world has the ability to build on Shopify and to build their business on Shopify. So if we take that company mission of being a 100-year company, being the place that makes entrepreneurship accessible to everyone, 
we hold those two things together, you start looking at the big threats. What are the big threats to that business? What are the threats to entrepreneurship? And when you look at that 100-year timeline, climate change is now on the table for something that needs to be addressed in order to future-proof our business. Because if people around the world are increasingly focused on dealing with and responding to the negative effects of climate change, like flooding, extreme weather events, forest fires, food scarcity, water scarcity, increased food prices, all of those things make people focus on survival. And when you're focused on survival, it's very difficult to build something and to thrive. And so we want to make sure that we're future-proofing our business by enabling people to have the ability to focus on entrepreneurship so that they can start a business and they can build that value for themselves, their family, and their community. And so that's why it's really important that we have our sustainability fund because we're looking to identify and support those solutions that all of humanity is going to need in the long run. I mean, I want to heap effusive praise on you. First of all, for anyone who's listening here who's building a company to have that sort of 100-year vision and viewpoint, and then to take the leadership position that Shopify has taken in this place is just so strong because you are helping to create a market around this technology that's so critical to where we're all going. So it's just a really inspiring story to hear. I appreciate you sharing that with us. You've done so much work in this over the last few years. And you said you, you struggled in 2019 to find the right type of carbon emissions to obviate from your business, I guess. So I'd love to hear, maybe you could break down the carbon market landscape today. Talk about any difference you see between carbon credits, carbon offsets. You talked about avoided emissions versus reduction. You know, what does it mean to sell negative emissions? And sort of how do you personally think about carbon that is proactively removed from the atmosphere relative to emissions that are avoided or sequestered? And then I guess just finally, what's holding back adoption on reduction credits today. You said there was a volume issue a few years ago, just like you've been great at doing, just kind of an, an open toss over the line to you for whatever, however you want to answer this broad question. Maybe I'll start at the beginning. A ton of emissions that we don't release today is a ton that we don't have to deal with down the road. So first and foremost, emissions reductions are critical And that has to happen. Everyone needs to be hyper-focused on that. However, the recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, the modeling has clearly shown that, you know, even if we stop all emissions today, we've still released too much in the past that we need to actually go back and undo that. And so there's two components to what needs to happen. We obviously have to continue our reduction efforts and really make sure that we're doing everything possible there. But we also need to make sure that we're supporting carbon removal. And when I talk about carbon removal, because there's a lot of terms (laughs) when you get into carbon markets, carbon removal is atmospheric capture with long-term almost permanent storage. Nothing's permanent if we want to get into existential debate, but like very long-term storage. So carbon removal needs to be there to address the emissions and go beyond reductions. So that to me is 
the areas of focus and carbon credits and carbon offsets, carbon removal, you know, there's no real consistency in what we're talking about. So when I'm looking at projects or companies or what we want to be supportive of, I think about two parts and that's really what's the source? Where is the carbon dioxide coming from that the solution is capturing? Is it an end of pipe? Is it an industrial application where they're capturing an emission before it's released into the atmosphere. To me, that is an avoided emission because you're able to capture it before it takes off. Then you have the carbon removal side, which is that emission that's gone and you couldn't stop it and it's now out in the atmosphere. So I think about source, but then I also think about a lot of other things and you get down to that whole question of durability. And it's great, we've caught the carbon dioxide, but where are we going to put it and how long is it going to stay there? And what's the likelihood of it being re-released? And that's where you get into that deep question of quality. And there's a huge range of solutions out there. We've got forests and soil carbon. We've got direct air capture with geologic storage. There's bio-oil, there is all sorts of ocean-based solutions evolving. And it really just is about finding something that provides the quality that you're looking for. And that is arguably the biggest issue with carbon markets, especially the voluntary carbon market these days. We've got such a range of solutions and technologies at a massive range of price points. I mean, you can go out and get a high quality forest carbon credit or forest carbon offset, you know, around $20, $25 a ton. You can go out and buy a direct air capture with geologic storage for upwards of $700 a ton. And why would you pick one or the other? That's the big thing with the market right now is that there's a lack of consistency, a lack of guidance, a lack of standardized approaches. And so the voluntary market's like the wild, wild west. And it's difficult to identify where we should be putting our money and what we should be buying because it's very unclear what the value is. And that kind of brings it back to what we were talking about in the introduction, back in 2019, what we wanted to buy was very expensive and minimal quantities were available. We've seen an uptick in supply in those durable long-term storage options like direct air capture, like some of the biomass being bio-oil and biochar solutions. But the supply, it's being picked up quite quickly by a handful of companies that are interested in buying it and some high net worth individuals and other organizations. But there's certainly not enough supply to satisfy the demand now. We've evolved. That demand signal that we wanted to put out in the market has been received. And now the supply is coming in and it's being bought up. But what has become clear is that we need more demand We need more buyers to give that certainty to the suppliers so that they can scale up. And we have to do it in lockstep together. Otherwise, we won't be able to expand that pie. We're just going to be dividing up the pie that's not growing. So it's really going to be about finding a way forward to encourage other buyers to join us. That's a perfect transition into my next question on buyers. 
But I guess before I, I go there, just to clarify something about sort of how you all are operating in this space, you know, you mentioned you can get everything from a high quality $20 per metric ton forestry credit up to a $700 direct air capture credit. My sense is at least how I understand how the Shopify sustainability fund works. You're not just simply looking for the lowest price thing out there. You're actually intentionally trying to buy from multiple different types of technologies in order to help seed the market and kind of help a number of different technologies get a sense of how their product might work in a commercial sense. Is is that true? Am I understanding that correctly? Definitely. So to provide some more context on our fund, we have two portfolios. We have our frontier portfolio, which includes those technologies that permanently remove carbon from the atmosphere, such as direct air capture, utilization in products such as concrete that locks it away, ocean-based solutions, biomass, mineralization. Those companies in that frontier portfolio, those are a lot of the high cost solutions. And it's really because we're paying that high early adopter premium because we want to help these companies scale and commercialize their technologies. And the idea around that is that we want to democratize sustainability by kickstarting the market to spur additional innovation that then helps protect our planet. And it's especially important to have that support for frontier companies that are doing research, setting up pilot facilities, moving beyond proof of concept to offering their carbon removal as a service in the market. So that's our frontier portfolio. We also have our evergreen portfolio, which includes those solutions that temporarily remove carbon or reduce carbon emissions. And The reason we're also participating in this space goes back to one of the fundamental principles is that we desperately need to also focus on reductions. And those temporary solutions that are available now at scale will buy us precious time while the frontier portfolio is scaling. And so in our evergreen portfolio, we have forest carbon projects, renewable energy projects, as well as soil carbon projects. And What's really important about this group of solutions is that they have to stand up to a rigorous test of whether or not they're providing the climate benefit that they're supposed to. And it really comes down to the monitoring, reporting, and verification that underpins all of those solutions because We've seen stories, I don't have to tell you, Cody, I'm sure you've seen some of the things that have come out about a lot of these carbon credits where they're just not providing the climate benefit that people think they're paying for. And so that's what our focus is with the Evergreen portfolio is to identify companies that are doing it a bit differently, that are really focused on that deep, deep monitoring that makes sure that we're getting the climate benefit we need because the last thing we want is for a solution to be dis not disproven but to be done in a low quality way because that just detracts from all of the efforts that we're all making to advance this area for sure thanks for going into that detail there i think that's super helpful for all of us to understand let's talk about that demand side and and the buyer side Who are some of the largest buyers of carbon reduction credits today? And one question, I guess, is how do startups 
and other providers of carbon credits discover these buyers. I assume most of this buying is happening somewhat directly, though there are definitely some brokers out there. I know folks like Carbon Direct and a few others work on the demand side to source high quality credits. Maybe you can explain a bit about what the demand side of the market looks like right now. So this is where the the whole carbon market gets even more complicated because for some of the carbon credits that are out there, like especially when I'm thinking about forest-based solutions, like those are readily available in public registries. You can buy them through a lot of different brokers. Then you you have to be able to do that monitoring and verification yourself to make sure that you're actually buying a credit that makes sense because as much as these registries have developed excellent monitoring and verification protocols, there's still challenges with making sure that carbon stays put where it's supposed to stay. That's one of the challenges on the demand side and why it can be very helpful to work with experts like at Carbon Direct to make sure that you are sourcing high quality credits from the best quality projects. Where things are a bit different is when we go over to the engineered side of the solution landscape. And there's not a lot of questions when you can just use a simple device like a mass flow meter, carbon dioxide in, carbon dioxide out, in the ground, no air coming out, locked away. It's super simple. And so that monitoring and verification component, it's still important to make sure that you're following appropriate protocols, but you don't have as much uncertainty there. And those are also these emerging frontier solutions where those credits are not available on the main four registries. They're not readily available in the market. To go and buy those credits, most times it is like B2B, business to business, like Shopify going out and saying, hey, Climeworks, hey, Carbon Engineering, we want to buy some of your carbon credits. And that requires a certain level of know-how. And so again, can be very helpful to have experts like different groups on your side or to reach out and collaborate with like some of the bigger buyers who are familiar with that space. And when it comes to those engineered credits, we have a lot of those in our frontier portfolio. Other companies like Stripe and Microsoft are also making very similar purchases on the engineered side. But when it comes to buyers of more of the nature-based solutions, which are less expensive, you're looking at big emitters. Big emitters in, for example, the oil and gas and manufacturing sectors are the large purchasers of those kinds of credits. And it's going to be very interesting in the future as a lot of uh, companies' climate commitments and net zero commitments start to hit their entry into force dates. And we're going to see, I think, a lot of the high quality credits get scooped up quite quickly. And that's going to create potentially some market clearing events, depending on how much is being purchased all at once by by certain large companies. So it's going to be very interesting because it brings into one of the things that I talk about a lot, you know, don't wait until it's time to implement your net zero commitment And don't wait until 2030 to buy some carbon removal. It's going to be very valuable to get involved now and to understand the market and to build those relationships. 
before it's going to be what everyone's looking for. As someone who works in tech, as you do, I totally believe in that, which is, it feels a little bit like some of these commitments that are, you know, 2040 or 2050. I mean, I know these companies have internal roadmaps, but as at tech, we've learned to say, okay, here's maybe the mountain we want to take, but what are the things we're going to do in the short term to learn and iterate and build along the way? And it would be great if some of these net zero pledges started talking about this year our goal is, or this quarter our goal is, because that's really the only way to get to a, you know, a 20 year out plus milestone, at least in my experience. And I have to assume they're doing it behind the scenes, but it would be nice for that, that public transparency to come there too. It'd be nice to see those incremental actions, right, happening in the market. And maybe we will, like you say, I'm sure folks have their roadmaps and they're working on it internally, but it'll be interesting to see those actually become operationalized. To go back to what you were saying about those commitments, we can't just assume that when we need the credits, we can just flip a switch and the lights are going to turn on. And that's one of the things that led us to our our approach with our fund. One of the things we know we're going to experience is failure. We know we're not going to pick 100% winning solutions in this situation. And it's all going to come back to that starting to experiment early on to figure out what is going to work. And failure is the successful discovery of something that didn't work. And the more frequently we do that, we're then eliminating things we shouldn't be wasting our time on. So the the faster we move and the more things we try, the sooner we're going to have the solutions that we need to really focus in on and to build those in scale. I love the foresight there and couldn't agree more with the strategy you're pursuing. So I'm curious, you know, you hit on this, the supply side in sort of touching on the demand side, which is really helpful. I'm curious on that supply side, particularly on the frontier technology side, what have you the most excited right now? And in particular, what have you been most surprised at the speed via which they're improving? And I think it's just helpful for everyone who's listening to get a sense of where some of the breakthrough technologies may be starting to come from. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. So I'm really happy that you brought it up because the technologies in carbon removal that I'm really excited about are the ones that are based in like some kind of ocean application. You know, the world's oceans are our largest carbon sink and they're also being adversely affected by climate change. You know, as the temperature rises, everything changes in ocean chemistry and the acidification only magnifies and then we're losing biodiversity and coral reefs and all of that. But it also has the the potential to be a massive component of the solution. And so one of our companies that we are working with in our frontier portfolio is Running Tide. And when I first talked to them, I was like, what is happening? They're talking about growing kelp and then sending it off into the North Atlantic and then it will grow. And then when it's heavy enough, it's going to sink down into the ocean abyss in the continental divide where due to pressure gradients and temperature gradients, it's going to stay down there forever. And I heard this and I was like, it just seems so simple. And it just seems so cost effective. And I was like, just so taken by the potential for scale. And 
that's one of the things that gets me the most excited about carbon removal is that potential to scale. Because if we can prove a concept like running tides, if they're able to conduct the research, ensure the environmental safety, figure out exactly how that's all going to work, the chemistry is okay, habitat's maintained, how much can we do on an annual basis without altering an ecosystem? If all of that gets sorted, we've got something that can be deployed globally and the potential to have massive drawdown is almost immeasurable in that situation. And so because of that, it's really exciting to think about scale. You asked about speed and where is that innovation happening for carbon removal technologies at a very fast speed. I've got one company in mind that we work with and it's Charm Industrial. What they do is they take bio oil, which is essentially a precursor to agricultural-based fuels like biodiesel, but it's the dirty, gummy, mucky, unpurified gunk that if you put that in your car, certainly not going to run your engine. So it's the unrefined bio oil that's made from biomass. And so rather than refining that further, which is expensive, they've decided, well, why don't we just put that back underground? Why don't we just reverse the whole thing instead of taking fossil fuels out? What we'll do is we'll take bio oil made from agricultural residues or wood product waste and make that into an oil and just put that back in the ground where the fossil fuels came from. And again, I was like, huh, that is a very simple approach because everyone's been so focused on biofuels over the past 25 years and they just haven't really taken off to the extent we've hoped. But this is a way to take that technology and really provide a huge climate benefit. And so what's exciting about that one and the speed that they're moving is that company has an incredible technology team, an incredible engineering and R&D team, and they'll come up against a roadblock. They'll iterate and move on to another way. It's like almost like any barrier you put in front of that team, they just move it out of the way and keep on going. And so they've exceeded our expectations. And we had originally purchased 1,000 tons of carbon removal from them, and they've already delivered that. And now we've signed on to buy another 3,000 tons over the next two years, which I have no doubt they're going to be able to achieve. And what that's doing is they're moving so quickly that they're desperate for buyers, not desperate in terms of, you know, they're going to have issues with their business, but like they're a company that everyone needs to get behind and support because the business case is there. The proof of concept is there. The team is there and they're really just looking to accelerate even faster. So that's a a really exciting pace that they're moving at. And I think we're going to see that industry expand as well with conversations I've had with other companies who may have started out as a biochar company, for example, they're now seeing the value in that bio oil byproduct. And they're like, wait a second, that's actually a massive climate benefit that we can capitalize on. So that industry is evolving quite quickly as well. That's great. And also something that's probably interesting to the listeners, many of whom are are startups and entrepreneurs, one of the co-founders of Charm Industrial Peter Reinhardt was also the co-founder and CEO of 
segments, which is a software <laughs> company. It's yeah. a you know data platform software company that sold to Twilio for multiple billion dollars, I believe. And to see him go from doing that to now going into a really hard tech climate company, I think it's really inspiring that technology folks who've kind of grown up in the software space can make that leap if they apply themselves and sort of surround themselves with the right team. A hundred percent. It's pretty amazing. I get the opportunity to talk to a lot of folks who are successful entrepreneurs and, you know, have recently exited and are looking to do something else. And all they want to do is focus their talents on climate. And I think that that is such a positive and uplifting thing. Like I know we're all pulling in the right direction when you have people leaving other sectors to come and work in climate. It's just remarkable. And I think we're at a very important inflection point with the industry. Awesome. I want to ask you sort of one more question here, which is around the criticism side of carbon removal. So one criticism is that they remove incentives for existing emitters to change behaviors. You know, obviously there's there's some question on permanence on some of the nature-based solutions, et cetera. But a common criticism I hear is that, you know, it's science fiction. We know what we need to do to deal with climate change, which is we need to scale deployment of solar and wind. And, you know, any dollar that's not scaling deployment is a dollar being put in the wrong place. I'm curious how you respond to that. My response is that it's all about balance. And that's one of the principles underpinning Shopify's sustainability fund. And it's why we haven't picked one thing. You know, when we made our carbon neutral commitment back in 2019, we made a bunch of decisions to drive deep reductions within our business. We transitioned all of our cloud computing to renewable power through Google. We implemented a bunch of different things when it came to food waste in our offices and really focused on those reductions and those efforts are ongoing. And that has to be balanced also with what we need to build for the future. And that's where the carbon removal play comes in. And so I would argue that carbon removal is not a license to continue emitting and to not do reductions. What it really is, is what we need to do alongside reductions, because if any of the data and the projections that we're listening to today actually come true, it doesn't matter how fast we do our reductions, now we're going to need carbon removal. So we need to do both. And it's not an either or scenario. It's about balancing our efforts across the two. And when it comes to that whole science fiction thing, I believe, you know, humanity has demonstrated time and time again, we come up against a problem or a barrier that limits our productivity and our growth, and we build a way around it. And I would argue that climate change is no different. We have to change our behavior, yes, but time and time again, we will engineer that solution to get ourselves out of the mess we're in. I think back to when we didn't have wastewater and sewage treatment in our cities. It caused all sorts of disease and plague and really was affecting our quality of life. We designed systems to collect, treat, and address that problem. The air is not much different. It's a, you know, a less dense fluid, but 
the problem set is quite similar and we need to be able to focus on cleaning our atmosphere, obviously, while we reduce our emissions into it. But it's not the moral hazard that people proclaim it to be. I think what could really go a long way to address that argument is not having people feel that our companies or bodies feel the need to do either or, but to have the requirement to do both. And if we're required to do both, we'll be able to get to the place that we need to be in terms of not emitting as much as we have or having no emissions because we fully transitioned the electricity grid and we've come up with all of the clean fuels that we need, but we also have to remediate the atmosphere. And so those three things, no matter which thing you're focused on in terms of those three priority areas, we're going to have to do them all. So I would recommend a balanced approach. And the last thing we need is that finger pointing, well, my solution is better than your solution or my way is the best way, or that's the only way. No, no, (laughs) the problem is so big that we need all of the ways. I couldn't agree more. And it's sort of like, if you want to get in shape, you need to both exercise and watch what you eat. You can't just do one and not the other, right? It's, I love uh... that. <laughs> You're right. You're right. That's perfect. So the last question and something I ask every guest, which is what's one piece of advice you have for entrepreneurs embarking on a climate focused endeavor? We kind of touched on it a bit earlier when we were talking about charm and some of the new participants in the space and the conversations that I have with those folks. And they're looking for, you know, how can I become an entrepreneur in climate? What can I do? What does the ecosystem need? What are the gaps that you notice? And that's important to think about, like product market fit, super important if you're an entrepreneur, but you're bringing a very specific thing to the game when you decide to participate. And I firmly believe that everybody has something that makes them unique. You have your own superpower and, you know, your superpower worked in your previous business. Well, how is that going to work in climate? What can you do that's uniquely contributing through your voice and your participation? And I found that when you think about it that way and you think about what you're good at and what your strength is, You're able to find a spot in the ecosystem where you're having impact every day. If you try to be something you're not, and you're not focused on something that you're excited to get out of bed and do every day, it's not going to work. So start there and then figure out how that fits into what is missing in the ecosystem. Awesome, Stacey. Well, thank you so much. I I so admire the work you're doing. It's so incredibly important and so impactful. And I'm grateful to you and to Shopify for being leaders in this space and grateful to you for coming on and uh, sharing your thoughts with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Cody. This has been great. Thanks for listening today. We hope you enjoyed the discussions. You can check out the episode notes for more info about our guests and resources we mentioned. See you on the next episode of the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast.